Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Stress eating through our second impeachment. It's election snack therapy. I'm Chris Moore. Guys, what you munching on? (laughs) <laughs> nothing right now <laughs> what's, your, what's your stress eating snack do you have one huh. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. i don't really stress eat good for you <laughs> that's why he's because hey, so i used to eat a lot anyway so <laughs> well i keep gr- emergency granola bars when i need food here in my office i'm holding one up in front of okay the emergency room. granola bars is the opposite of stress eating <laughs> <laughs> Sam, bail me out here. Do you uh, do you have a stress eating snack that you indulge in? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think just candy in general is the is is sort of my go to. Like eating like a pound and a half of M and M's or something like that. Like something real. It would be something real bad like that. See, I go the other direction. I go salty rather than sweet for stress eating snacks. Mm-hmm. Wow, hard yeah. to disagree. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, we are been. It's been a stressful season uh, in politics. Everyone knows that. Uh, we've we're a week out from one of the, as we said last time, one of the most event, one of the most impactful, important events of our political lifetimes: the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. We're going to continue talking about some of the fallout from that event, including uh, the second impeachment of President Donald Trump. The first time in American history, the president has been impeached twice and only the fourth impeachment in American history. And we're going to talk about what some of that means, both for him, for the country, and for the incoming Biden administration. So, uh, guys, buckle up. This is a, this is a weird time. It's, um, yep. And I feel like just to get started, we should probably say for people what we would have been talking about otherwise, <laughs> because this has been such a tumultuous, chaotic, tragic um, end uh, to what was already a chaotic presidency. If this wasn't, if if this had been politics as usual, if we were not stress eating, if I was not stress eating, if there was this, if it was politics as usual, what would we be talking about at this point? What kinds of things, Matt, would you hope we would be talking about um, at the end of a normal presidency? I mean, you would look at the transition process, you would look at um, especially look at Biden's appointments to the various uh, cabinet, um, you know, departments and agencies, um, and what that signals about his his priorities. You would look at the sort of legislative agenda that's being floated around. Um, you would look at what the different factions in the Democratic Party, which now has a trifecta, what they're talking about and discussing. You would talk about how, uh, because now Democrats have you know, a 50-50 split in the Senate that is a tie broken by Kamala Harris that we're in this weird situation in which even though Chuck Schumer will become the majority leader, really because it's a 50-50 split, there's going to be some sort of power sharing arrangement in which maybe some committee chairs will go to Republicans um, and, um, and, and, and McConnell will still have some degree of power, maybe, you know, not as 
not as much as he currently has now. We talk about how this is relatively unprecedented. We'd be talking about that and how the, that dynamic would affect the Senate. So there's so many different things we'd be talking about normally um, at this point, but we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. Any other things that you wistfully wish we were um, talking about at this point? Well, yeah, I mean, I absolutely wish we were talking about that. I mean, we have a new administration coming in. That's an opportunity to get some things done. We're at a moment where we have some things that need to get done. We have an economy that's struggling. We have a pandemic that's ongoing. We have um, an attempt to try to do some things to make that better. Um, and instead, we're focusing on, again, the kind of tumult of the outgoing administration. Um, it's getting way more energy and oxygen um, in terms of the news cycle than it should be, frankly, at this point. Yeah, I think that's something that I'm that I'm it's hitting home for me is that at the end of the Obama administration in 2016, there was a lot of focus in the news media and coverage and even thought processes about the tr incoming Trump administration, Trump's appointees. Uh, Rex Tillerson was a big news story right. <laughs> uh, yeah. around this time back in, 20, uh, back in uh, um, 2017. And so um, the fact that we're focusing still on the outgoing presidential administration rather than the incoming one is a, is a very different process. Uh, real quick, we'll, we'll get into the impeachment. We'll get into the fallout from the things that led to the impeachment. But does this hurt the incoming Biden administration to have uh, the Trump administration sucking up all the media oxygen at this point? Or is this an unexpected boon for Biden as he gets his administration organized? I don't know. I mean, swords cut both ways. I mean, the media attention would be useful. But also, you know, I mean, it gives Democrats some steam and I think they could be tempted to overreach, right? Because they're like, well, clearly yeah. this is, you know, we have a repudiation of Trump and look how bad he is. And so this yeah. means we need to do whatever we want. I think Biden, there's good signs that Biden is trying very hard not to go down that road. Um, so I think to the extent that team Biden and Democratic leaders in Congress can sort of hold back some of those forces and moderate themselves, I think they're in a, in, in a very good position at this point. Um, and, you know, plus when you're, you, you, you're, you know, being compared to, you know, how bad Trump has been and some of his enablers have been like, you just look like the paragon of virtue in comparison. You yeah, probably right. aren't, but yeah. you look great in comparison. And, and that's always helpful, I guess. So. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, like on the one hand, you would like to come in with a lot of energy, a lot of momentum, and it doesn't feel like the Biden camp is having any chance to build that because of the focus isn't really on them. On the other hand, um, boy, the bar is set awfully low, right, um, for being better than this, right? Um, and so I think that that could could prove helpful. Um, it really does depend on what they do with it. I mean, which which direction do they try to go? Ed Rendell, who is the former DNC national chair and governor of Pennsylvania, had an interesting op-ed this week where he basically was encouraging them, like, kind of go for you know, really practical solutions, like uh, surrounding the economy, the pandemic, right? And I think that's a good strategy. If you can do that and show, like, we can get some things done that make the dif a difference in the American people's lives, um, then I feel like this could turn out pretty well for them. Um, we'll see. We'll see which you know kind of which view dominates in the end. Yeah, I want to come back to the idea of of uh, what Biden should be doing towards the end of our podcast today, perhaps because there is a potential. I think that if Biden just pursues sort of the the pragmatics and the uh, sort of the the easy wins, that he's going to get he's going to get criticism from his left. 
And that might exacerbate something that Matt discussed with us in our, our previous podcasts, which is uh, fracturing within the, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party uh, on the sort of left-right spectrums. So, but that's a bigger conversation. Before we get to that, we have a couple... Um, Boy, uh, custodial affairs we have to deal with here. Um, literally, in this case, um, the cleanup at the Capitol. We're now a week out from our last podcast and our discussions of the insurrection that occurred at the U.S. Capitol, which led to the impeachment of the president for a second time. Mm -hmm. Before we get to that whole conversation about impeachment, what else do we know? What else has transpired in this last week that we can now clarify about the insurrection itself? What are some key points that are jumping out to you all that are not just news items, but potentially politically um, really significant about this, um, about this insurrection? Well, there's certainly been news stories about, you know, people who are on kind of watch lists, um, white supremacist types who were involved in this, right? And so, you know, that's maybe not surprising if you looked at kind of what happened and how it went down last week but it does confirm right i mean that these are some you know they're not just a random group of citizens right like this is a a group of kind of known agitator types right um and so i think we've we've had that um and we're still very much in the like well what does that mean what how do we what do we do about that right um stage but i think that's that's informative right in terms of thinking about you know how, how do we think about what happened at the capitol last week so if there's people i mean there, there were some people out there who wanted to give this a more sympathetic interpretation i think that's getting harder the more we find out i thought that was hard last week but i think it's even harder now yeah uh oh, go ahead matt do you want to jump in i mean yeah i mean so you definitely have i think if you sort of dig into there's been so much really good reporting um in a number of different outlets you know reporters who were actually in you know, amidst the protesters and the rioters. And you really have some distinct different groups. So you definitely have the white supremacists, the right-wing extremists, you have the Proud Boys, you have people who call yep. themselves lawful combatants, um, <laughs> self-proclaimed militia um, types who are out there trying to recruit for their militia, right? So they can, you know, many, yep. many of these, as Andy pointed out, were on watch lists, um, had been involved in some, you know, very extreme sort of um, calls for violence to social media. Um, but then you also have more of your sort of standard rank and file um, MAGA, you know, um, you know, Trump supporters, um, sort of the stop the steal. Um, we are here to save our country and protest because Trump actually called us to come here on January 6th um, to come protest. Um, and so, you know, a lot of them, you know, were you know, not storming the Capitol and held back and were fairly peaceful. Um, um, so, you know, I think, you know, they believed a lot of, a lot of, you know, a lot of misinformation um, and were sold, sold a bunch of lies. Um, but you do have these different groups. And I think it's mm -hmm. important to sort of, if you really want to know more, sort of delve into some of the reporting on that, because there's some, some really interesting stuff there. But yeah, some of them, some of them are crazy. I mean, there's one QAnon um, believer from Colorado basically drove all the way to DC with basically a small arsenal and had plans to assassinate Pelosi, right? Yep. Like more we learn about what happened, the more like mind blowing the whole thing was. I mean, there was an yep. interesting report in the Wall Street Journal that members of Congress were literally seconds away from being held hostage. Yep. Um, and we know that some of the people that did storm the Capitol and were seconds away from breaking into both chambers came there with intentions to hold hostages and to potentially kill. Right. We were very close to things being far worse than they ended up being. Um, and I think that's we're going to get more information coming out about this in the coming weeks as there's ongoing investigations. And 
And I think that's actually relevant. It's not just a news story. It's relevant because that will, I think, end up putting more pressure on Republicans in the Senate to ultimately see uh, a conviction of Trump and a barring from office. But we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. We'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. I want to jump in here just for a second and illustrate something that we talked about last time in our podcast. I, I brought up uh, how some of the, uh, how a violent movement like this might originate, and I used uh, Charles Tilley's resource mobilization theory as a way of a paradigm for thinking through that. And I wanted to illustrate some of the membership that's here because some of the media reporting has suggested that there was a bunch of, there were a bunch of people at the Capitol protests, which then. Some of them uh, turned violent and some of them stormed the Capitol, but certainly not all of them. And the question is, are those two separate groups? And this, this uh, is, the answer to this is in some ways, no. Um, that these are actually very interrelated groups. There was, it wasn't like there was this group of hardcore militants hiding inside what was otherwise a peaceful protest. This was a, a protest which was peaceful and then turned violent because of some of the different compositions of it. And so, uh, Matt, you mentioned the Proud Boys. I disagree, but, but go oh, ahead. Okay, all right. Go ahead. Go sure, ahead. sure. So um, there were, there, there were the, this was a, a heterogeneous group of people who were at this protest. Some of the people here were motivated um, by the belief that Donald Trump was uh, wrongfully deprived of a re-election. Some of the people here are believers in QAnon, which is a very um, intense, uh, deep, um, uh, te many tentacled uh, online conspiracy theory, um, which amongst other things claims that a huge portion of, of America's media culture and left-wing politicians um, and some right-wing politicians, including Mike Pence now, are part of a pedophilic cannibalistic cult. Um, but there were other groups too, which don't subscribe to either one of those groups. There were the Proud Boys, which is a um, white supremacist uh, leaning organization, um, very much opposed to groups that they see as as um, as villains in American society, specifically a organized Antifa, but especially the Black Lives Matter. But in addition to that, there was also um, what's uh, for lack of a better term of the Boogaloo Boys, and these groups are not the same thing. Uh, the Boogaloo Boys um, believe that America is bound for some sort of general breakdown of civil society. And in many ways, the Boogaloo Boys are more opposed to the police than any other part of American society. That They're looking to cause and foment insurrection and the breakdown of civil society, which is not at all what the Proud Boys want. So these are very different groups, but all seem to have been present in various forms during these protests. Now, I think I'm, I might be undercutting Matt's point here. Some of these groups were more willing to engage in violence than others. But the critical mass of people at the, at the protest then facilitated um, a, um, a more violent action at the Capitol itself, even though this was not, by as far as we can tell, a highly coordinated event. But Matt, did you want to jump into that then? Yeah, I, I think you're right to point out there were a lot of different distinct groups, some who, who arrived with different intentions or ideas or beliefs. Um, it is interesting, though, if you look at the reporting, a lot of the most extreme groups look like they had scoped out everything in advance. Um, there's some evidence that they had actually gotten capital tours to scope things out. 
potentially with the help from the inside. Um, and on the day of the protest itself, you know, before even the Trump rally started and as it was going, and that's back where most of the protesters were at, right? Um, a lot of the, some of the members of the most extremist groups, like sort of the militia recruiter types, the Proud Boys, they were already up at the Capitol um, and, and starting to eventually sort of push back the barricades and make a fuss. Um, and eventually what you saw is, and New York Times is a very interesting sort of timeline description on this. I encourage you to go look it up. Basically, the, the group of protesters back at the Trump rally, which was back at the Washington Monument in the, in the White House, basically began to move to the Capitol, where the more some of the more extreme groups were already located. And you, what you began to see is you began to see sort of a merging of these groups um, in the end, um, where sort of like the Proud Boys and some of the militia recruiter types basically had bullhorns and basically directing traffic. Um, sort of the masses to like, hey, go here, go up on these steps, come on up here. This is this belongs to us, and so on. Um, and you get sort of a merging of these groups. So, um, but I think it's important to realize that and you point this out, Chris, that you do have these different sort of groups that came there with different intentions. But in the end, some of the po protesters that came there that didn't have any idea that we're going to storm the Capitol when they first arrived in DC ended up doing as they became enveloped in some of these other groups. And of course there are yeah. you know, a number of, you know, a mass of people that never even got close to the steps of the Capitol as well. But I think this, uh, that's, that's a really good point. Thanks for clarifying that, Matt, because this, what, what this really helps us understand is why some of the people who made their way into the Capitol appeared to be moving with great purpose. They were going, you know, they're, they're moving into there with uh, walkie talkies. They have zip ties attached to them. In some yep. cases they have other kinds of um, equipment. Yep. Uh, and they were moving in to take hostages. They were moving in to occupy specific spaces. And then other people were moving in and were following lines and following velvet ropes and taking selfies with Capitol Hill police. Yep. Um, there really were these different populations that were making their way into the Capitol with very different intentions and very different motives. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And I think it's important for for people to realize that there are different groups who came with different intentions, because what you're seeing right now, you know, I think they, they've all been told lies and, and, you know, they should all be prosecuted to the extent that they broke the laws. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whether it's just trespassing or whether it's something much more problematic. And I think yeah. we should be discriminating in that. At the same time, I think I think. Democrats in sort of public office and in in the media should be careful in trying to lump all these groups together, right? Exactly. Uh, and, and we're seeing some of that. And I think we need to be careful about that and avoid that. Absolutely. Right. So one of the one of the most important effective things that um, political leaders could do right now is to carefully in a nuanced way disaggregate some of the motives of these different groups because in many ways their motives are opposed to each other and the glue that's binding them together is an allegiance to Donald Trump. And if you can kind of uh, dissolve that glue a little bit, there's no real reason that the Proud Boys should be aligning with the Boogaloo Boys. These are really groups of very different kinds of motives about, about civil society. And so um, if you employ the Hillary Clinton tactic of calling them a basket of deplorables, you're doing nothing to help actually undermine their cohesion. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, Let's talk about back before we get to the impeachment itself, man. We're going to talk about the impeachment, I promise. But let's talk about the backlash a little bit here. Um, 
We've of course seen the actual governmental backlash, which is the initial calls by the by the House uh, to uh, Mike Pence to invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment, something that he uh, explicitly in writing said that he was not going to do. But we've also seen an outside of government uh, businesses are cutting ties with Donald Trump with the Trump Organization. Um, I'm sorry to say that the PGA uh, will not hold its championship at a Trump-owned golf course in 2022. Um, but they're probably sad. sad. Is it sad? Are you, are you, are you sad? Are you, not really. Do you follow professional golf there, Andy? No, I'm just quoting Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> um, how significant are some of these uh, corporate uh, responses? Um, I mean, it's, you know, so some, a lot of corporate, most corporations that are sort of backing out are saying like, we're not making any political don donations for a while to let things cool. Mm -hmm. um, there are some organizations, some, some corporate, um, you know, some organizations that are saying we're not donating to Republicans who have basically enabled Trump and how of these conspiracy theories or called for the overturning of election results. But, but most corporations have basically said we're pulling the plug on political donations for, for some time. Um, now, now when you say that, are they actually pulling the plug on donations in total or just to Republicans who supported overturning the election results? Most are just pulling plugs on donations in general, although there are some that are basically pulling plugs on Republicans that have supported overturning election results. So it's a mix. Um, so, and we'll see how, how all of that shifts um, in the coming, the coming weeks. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, like when you think about Trump's post-presidency, right? Like where does this go? Um, th these are significant. I mean, like he, obviously had prickly relations with a lot of people right outside of the kind of um, his kind of populist supporters before this, but now it's gotten more serious. Right. I mean, and you know, he is still a businessman with a, a prominent business empire and this has real implications for what he will and won't be able to do. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I think we don't know at this point exactly how all that's going to play out. Um, but I think it is clear like that he is, you know, his, his, presidency is looking much more complicated now than it did um at the beginning of this year right which was yeah. only if you're keeping track two weeks ago right <laughs> um, so you know it's the last eight days are significant and and we'll you know again it's just early on just to sort of say what does all that mean um but his life has gotten more complicated yeah and i would argue that this is probably a unique problem for donald trump in his post-presidency because the it, to the outsider, the casual outsider, it looks like Donald Trump has very diverse business interests, right? He has a lot of real estate. He has hotels, um, casinos. He has um, a, a line of so sort of failed ventures in higher education and stakes and other kinds of things. Um, but in reality, the thing that Donald Trump benefits the most from is his name. Yep. And he licenses yep. his name to hotels. A lot of yep. the properties that have Trump on them are not owned by Donald Trump, but he, he's a he's licensed his name to some other holding group that is he, he's a part of. And so, to the extent that his name carries less cachet, especially with other corporate partnerships, uh, this is potentially very damaging to his overall wealth and the wealth that he might pass on to his kids uh, yep. in the coming years. And so, I think this is corporate punishment, basically is especially damaging uh, to Donald Trump compared right. to other potential, uh, you know, political actors. 
Right. No, that's right. I mean, he's, I mean, there's, you know, he's trying to sell off certain properties and he's not, they're not getting even close to the asking value of them. Right. He's going to have a hard time getting, you know, at his large hotels, right. You know, uh, other businesses are not going to book their conferences, you know, at these hotels, you know, you have the PGA, you know, yanking tournaments from Trump golf courses and, and so on. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and there's, a, you know, and he has, he's having trouble getting loans. Right. So, and he's had trouble before. Deutsche Bank is the only bank that's giving him loans, but looks like they're basically putting the kibosh on that too. And so, you know, if he gets into you know financial difficulties, where is he going to get money? He could probably get right. it somewhere, but you know, maybe at higher interest. And like, it's just yeah. there's all sorts of problems that are sort of piling up for Trump and the uh, Trump organization. And the secondary impact is his his exit plan, which he planned to employ back in 2016, was that he was going to start a media network, uh, whether it was a TV station or some or some kind of multimedia enterprise. That is still his plan. But the way that those things become profitable is advertisers. And right. if he's going to have trouble right. selling advertisements on his whatever his media network is, are people going to buy subscriptions uh, to Trump TV? It's It's not clear to me. And so this might become a much less profitable enterprise than he was anticipating, both in terms of actual money, but also in terms of his future political career. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, you can go read reporting on this, but yeah, I mean, basically some of the big, the big sort of companies that own, you know, that, that could put together networks. So like you look at Verizon, yeah. you look at AT&T, he either has soured relationships with them or they've said, we're not going to have any part of this. Right. So starting up a TV network would be really hard. He could try to do some sort of internet based thing. Um, you know, he could try to, you know, there's some talk about how he could potentially buy um, OAN or Newsmax, um, which already exists. Right. But then but then at that point, you risk sort of alienating Fox News, which might turn on him because that would be, you know, he would basically be making them a competitor and drawing off a lot of their viewership. So Fox News would turn on him, which wouldn't be good for him as well. So, like, there's, you know, one thing to keep in mind, though, is that, you know, media is, is so squishy. There's always ways to sort of warm your way back in and find a voice, especially yeah. in sort of today's world of media prolifer proliferation. So don't count them out. Um no, obviously he has an uphill battle in that way, but I don't. Yeah. I don't know if we've seen the last of him. We, we you're, not, you're not willing to count him out of the one place I'm willing to count him out of, Twitter. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm, um, Twitter has been uniquely uh, capitalized upon by Donald Trump. Um, it was his bully pulpit. It was his way of speaking to the American people. Uh, Donald Trump held fewer press conferences and fewer remarks with. Um, uh, with norm, with through the normal um, <clears throat> White House briefing process than most presidents, but he had a continual stream of language coming directly from his brain to the American people, which was a boon to political scientists like us to say what the president was really thinking because he just kept saying it. However, he has now received a lifetime ban from Twitter. Twitter's a private enterprise. There is no reason they can't do this. But... I had someone ask me, okay, I'll be honest. It was my mom. My mom asked me um, <laughs> yesterday. She said, hey, mom. She said, uh, Hi, Cheryl. Um, she said, uh, do, um, do you worry about freedom of speech? Or, or, or do you worry about um, what Donald Trump is doing on Twitter? And I said, yeah, yes to both. I think this is a concern. So I, I want to throw that to you guys too. Um, is this... 
um, decision by Twitter um, and a decision, a, a different decision by the Apple Store and Google and the Google Play Store to uh, delist uh, apps like Parler. Are these are these concerns to you from a freedom of speech perspective? Well, so I guess I can start off here. I mean, I'll say both yes and no. Um, on the one hand, no, right? I mean, like these are private enterprises; they are allowed to regulate. Um, and so it just says, you know, like you go to an old sports example, right? Major League Baseball is allowed to ban Pete Rose for life, right? Um, and to say like these activities you've engaged in are unacceptable um, in gambling on the sport while you're a manager, you can no longer be part of this organization, right? Like that is allowed, right? Um, you're not locking them up and saying you can't say anything. You're just saying we're not, you're, you're not going to be associated with our organization. And that's fundamentally in some ways what Twitter is doing, right? On the other hand, right, I mean, I think it does lead to these concerns of, you know, like Trump himself is not engaged in violence. I mean, he said many provocative things and he's done that long before January 6th of 2021. Um, and, you know, how much do we want to play this game of saying like in these things that are like sort of free services available to pretty much anyone who wants to sign up? Um, how much do we police, you know, people saying provocative things, right? Which is different than, you know, say posting violence or actually out calling for outright violence, which Trump didn't quite, right? Um, you can say like he, he led to that. So I, I think I affirm your mother's concern, even though I can also see the case for why, you know, we might say this might, it's, it's not a constitutional violation, I guess, is, is if we're going to kind of use that low bar. Yeah, I'll, I'll grant that entirely, Andy. It's not a constitutional violation. If the government stepped in and removed Correct. Donald Trump from Twitter, that would be a problem for free speech. Right. But this is Twitter's a private enterprise. But beyond the constitutional protection of free speech, yep. there is also the societal norm, the liberal societal norm of freedom yep. of speech, which right. we offer a wide but not perfect latitude to. We certainly restrict yep. certain kinds of speech, hate speech, things that incite panic, things that incite violence. Yep. But... Is this is this it going beyond that? I guess is what I'm wondering. Especially, I'm I'm less concerned about Twitter kicking Trump off of Twitter than I am with um, Google and Apple, um, who are hosts delisting uh, or an organ uh, a social media organization like Parler. Is that problematic from a societal perspective? If not illegal, well, um, I mean, is that is that a is that just them saying we're not going to sell that? We're not going to offer that service with our product? Basically, that's how I understood it. So my understanding is it's a little bit more than that. And so on the one hand, there's an app which is available, which was available through the Apple Store and through the Google Play Store, which is no longer available. So you can't get the, you can't buy an app through those organizations, which is one of the only ways to get the app. But more importantly, Google, which does web hosting, will no longer web host Parler. And Amazon. Meaning, and Amazon. Meaning, meaning that if you searched for that, that um, social media network through Google, you wouldn't be able to find it. Okay. But so functionally, it doesn't exist anymore. Well, through that net, but you can, it still exists. It just doesn't exist if you go through Google. So it still exists on your phone if you already have it. You just can't go to the store and download it. Um, Amazon, you know, is in some ways a worse problem because Parler, or some people pronounce it Parlay, um, basically. <laughs> is that really the problem pronunciation? Amazon. Well, Say what? 
Is, is it actually parlay, or is it, um, or is it? This is just like tar, Target calling it Target. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Um, parlay I do know that Amazon, however, you know, provided basically the data or the cloud services for this app, right? Yeah, um, that's exactly what I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah the clouds. So, so that's a little different than the availability of the App Store, but it's fundamentally a similar thing, right? So, so here's here's. Okay. Here's kind of what it boils down to. As you pointed out, Chris, these are private entities that are providing services either directly to um, to you know private citizens, customers, or providing services to other businesses. Right. Um, the question is, um, you know, here's the thing. So these are private companies. I guess they are publicly held, right? But they are still you know private companies right. owned by private citizens, right? Correct. The problem is, and basically Facebook and Twitter and all of these companies made this mistake, you know, back when they started is they touted themselves as being public forums, being a public square. Right. Basically, right. you could say whatever you want. We'll give you a platform and no one can shut you up because we are public forums, which they weren't. Right. Um, now they are basically coming around to what is actually true and what they should have stated 10 years ago is like, we are, this is not a private forum. This is a, this is a private space. It's very large. It's a private space, um, in which you can come have conversations. Um, and ultimately we can kick you out if we disagree with your conversations if we think that they are violent or threatening. And it turns out that Facebook and Twitter have had, especially Facebook, very wide latitude in the sorts of things that are can be discussed in their private space. Facebook has been actually very generally lenient um, to conservative groups, um, very far right conservative groups for the most part. But go read reporting about what Facebook and Amazon, for example, have had to deal with in the past three or four weeks. I mean, so Amazon spent weeks with Parler trying to address some of the groups that were on Parler's platform that were basically calling for calling for violence. Yeah. Um, Parler was backlogged by 26,000 requests to take down a variety of posts. They literally could not churn through all of them. Amazon is saying like, hey, you got to start using AI. You got to actually work through this. And if you don't, we're going to pull the plug on your service, right? Mm -hmm. um, Facebook, too. Uh, was bombarded by tens of thousands of hits every day that they had to sort through. And basically it got, and, and you can look at sort of the, the spikes in the sort of the incidents of calls for violence had increased sharply over the past few weeks. And basically they, you, know, you can go read the reporting, you know, they got to the point where they said, we literally can't keep up with everything. We yep. have to pull the plug on the whole thing. So, and it's within their right to do so. Um, it's, it's a tough call, right? Anytime a company tries to shut down, you know, the speech of other groups, even within its private space, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. a tough call, right? Um, but if you look at sort of the sorts of things that have been said, the violence that has been called for across many different groups, right? It's, it's dangerous. And I think they were well within their rights to do it. I understand it's a tough call. I understand if you might disagree with it, but um, the fact that Amazon and, and, and Facebook and Twitter and these other groups have done what they've done is, does not make me worried, right? They're not, this isn't, you know, policing, um, you know, speech that isn't PC, right? That's not what's going on. They're policing right. calls to go murder members of Congress, 
right. and hang Pence, right? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. anyway, I, I could yeah. rant on it, um, yeah. but, but what we are seeing here is not an attack on free speech. Right, I think I, I agree with that. I think where I would, the concern I would raise is that like, it does remind us of a bigger issue that we're gonna, we've, we've thought about, you know, in the United States some, we're gonna, I think, be hit over the head with more, which is the growing power of kind of private groups, big business, big tech, right, um, that, you know, can do this. And so even if, like, I think that Matt, Matt, you make a really good case that this is, you know, there are very deep concerns about what's being put out there and, um, and you know, terrible things that are being advocated for. Um, but that power can be used for a variety of things, right? The power to shut mm -hmm. these things down. And so, you know, I think that the concerns of, you know, Chris's mom and others, right? And I've had this pop up in my Facebook feed too, right? Um, are are fair, even though in this instance, it feels like, yeah, this it feels like a mostly responsible use of the power. Um, we are not guaranteed that it will always be so, right? And it, and it yeah. is concerning that there's this kind of private, concentration of power that has such sway over people's lives and what what can we do about that right and i think that's a real concern so let me throw out a test case because as political scientists we always want to look for a future case that we can hypothesize about and then observe <clears throat> and we've had a pretty slow pretty um anemic rollout to the vaccination process here yep. in the united states we can't even vaccinate all of our uh, frontline healthcare workers yet but we're but eventually especially through through 2021 I have lots of faith that a large portion of the American population um, who desperately needs it will get vaccinated. I expect within that time frame, we will also see the fullest blooming of an anti-vaxxer movement the United States has yet seen. Um, there's, there has been a, an ongoing anti-vaccination movement in the United States for over a decade, but I expect it will explode this year um, as people who... Um, are already nervous about vaccines will will find sources of information through social media which tell them vaccines cause autism, vaccines are dangerous, vaccines are not well tested, vaccines are harmful to you. And I expect that there's going to be pressure on some of these social media uh, networks, Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere, to censor some of these posts too, because if it, especially if it's clearly deliberate misinformation, there's going to be pressure to say you need to take these things down. And that is not quite the same level of immediate connection to violence as right. calling for the hanging of the vice president. And what yep. they do with that is going to be really interesting. Yep. No, that's a great example. Well, I, I agree. Um, I would be surprised if they completely yanked all, all dissent. Right. Um, they, I could definitely see them putting up, you know, you know, attaching, you know, comments or links, you know, to mm -hmm. anti-vaccination, you know, posts and articles. Um, that seems definitely possible. I, I would be surprised if they would pull it all together because they have yet to do it. Right. Um, yep. That doesn't mean they couldn't in the future, but, yep. but I mean, here's the thing guys, like, so part of the reason Facebook and Twitter and everyone else has been so reticent to pull the plug until now is because they know that regulating, you know, and playing sort of, you know, language police is bad for their business, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a monetary incentive to take a light hand with most of this sort of language policing, which is part of the reason, you know, it's gotten as bad as it has, right? Where they really didn't put the gabosh on this mm -hmm. until after you saw the storming of the Capitol, right? So... 
Um, and I think that monetary incentive is is very powerful. Well, we should take a turn away from social media and away from societal impacts, much more directly back to Congress here. Before we uh, before we're out of time today, let's talk about the actual impeachment itself. Um, the House House impeached Donald Trump for a second time. Every Democrat in the House voted for uh, Resolution 24, and notably this time, they were joined by 10 Republicans. So the, time, the final vote was uh, 232 in favor of impeachment, 197 opposed. But just those 10 Republicans joining in with Democrats made this the most bipartisan impeachment in American history. I didn't know that, but apparently someone went back and looked at the Andrew Johnson impeachment. Um, wow. And even that wasn't nearly as bipartisan as those 10 Republicans made this impeachment. Um, what is the point of impeaching the president um, with a week left to go in his term of service? I think part of it's, I mean, part of it's symbolic as a repudiation, right, of what what he did, um, and it and it was personal. I mean, like you know, it wasn't just some abstract like miscarriage of justice, and the president abused his power. He abused his power in a way that directly put members of Congress in danger, right? As Matt already laid out for us very well. Um, so I think you know that that plays in here. Um, I do also wonder about like where this goes from here. I mean, it's pretty clear the Senate's not going to, um, you know take this up until Joe Biden's president, which does raise this question, like, is it worth doing? Um, but it it seems like there's at least the possibility of the Senate not only convicting the president if they wanted to do that, um, but also possibly barring him from office. And so I'm curious if we want to discuss that a little bit, because I think it, that's that's really interesting. Like, could they actually say Donald Trump is no longer eligible to hold office? Um, and then what would the consequences of that be? Yeah, I mean, right. So, I mean, there's talks about you need to remove him from office before he can prevent further damage uh, or do further damage, right? right? So, you know, inciting more riots, um, pardoning the people who were involved in the riots, right? Right. Uh, I think more important than that is you want to set this, a precedent in which, you know, Congress speaking on behalf of America is not going to tolerate this sort of behavior, right? right. We need to send a signal that some lines cannot be crossed without serious yeah. consequences. Yeah, you know, it, as some people have pointed out, if if you can impeach in this sort of case, there's not many other cases in which you would impeach, right? Um, right. Short of you know directly collaborating with you know Vladimir Putin to invade the United States, I mean, there's like, <laughs> you know, like there's, there's not that many other sort of real world life cases in which you would impeach. Impeachment right. is meant for this sort of thing, basically. Yep. Yep. Um, so. But yeah, but but I guess the question is, okay, what are the next steps? When will the Senate trial begin? Um, where do we go from here? So it looks mm -hmm. like the Senate trial could begin as early as Inauguration Day, probably within the the you know next you know the, the few days following Inauguration Day. Um, it looks like uh, Pelosi, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, will um, likely transmit uh, these articles of impeachment um, to the Senate. The Senate already wasn't scheduled to reconvene until January nineteenth. Impeachment. Right excuse me, the inauguration is on January the 20th. So if the articles of impeachment are transmitted to the Senate by that point, basically that becomes, you know, top of the agenda. And one of the things that uh, that some Democrats are worried about 
that I think Biden is worried about is that basically the impeachment hearings are going to interfere with the Senate's business of confirming uh, Biden's executive appointments and also his legislative priorities. And so the Senate would probably have to juggle all of that. Um, but it does look like the trial will begin at least shortly after the inauguration. Um, and that could that could take you know several weeks. Um, yeah. We will see how yeah. fast that goes. Um, as to the question... Oh, go ahead, Chris. I say one thing I've heard is that Biden has asked the Senate or asked Chuck Schumer to bifurcate their days, yeah. basically spend half the day doing the impeachment trial and half the day confirming his cabinet appointees. Right. But even so, this is going to slow roll out his confirmation process. Yeah. No, it, so. it, it definitely will. Um, so, so the Constitution um, basically has a provision, you know, that you know a, a person can be removed from office once they are impeached. Um, yeah. They can also be barred from holding office in the future. Um, the Constitution is sort of um, pretty vague on how exactly all this would play out. But we do know there's an instance of a, a public, a high-level public official being impeached after he resigned, after he left office, um, and then the Senate conducting yeah. a trial. Um, so basically, there is a case back um, in, you know, after the Civil War, Secretary of War William uh, Belknap, who served yep. under Grant was impeached a few hours after he resigned, and the Senate trial um, continued on for months. Um, ultimately, the Senate didn't um, didn't convict because um, there weren't enough votes, but the trial continued, um, and right. it was very close right. to convicting. Um, and if you sort of go look at the sort of the debates over the impeachment power, um, you know, back during the the debates over ratification of the Constitution and the development of the Constitution, it was actually pretty clear that impeachment um, could be used to bar a person from office. And this was actually something that was done in the states. Um, so actually some of the state legislatures at the time had provisions um, in which a person could be, you know, impeached for the purposes of barring afterwards. Actually, some state legislatures, you couldn't impeach until after the person left office because impeachment was solely seen as a way to actually bar the person from holding office again. It's sort of kind of ultimate censure, you might say, mm -hmm. yep. uh, and stripping them of, of a political future. Um, and basically, it was sort of understood during the founding era that this is what impeachment could involve. Um, and if the Senate wanted to, it could actually bar someone from running for office. And I think ultimately um, you would, you know, what you would see is you would see like, how would this get tested in court? Because inevitably you're going to have a lawsuit over this, right? So how would this get tested? Well, so if the Senate did vote to um, bar pre President Trump, former President Trump from running for office again, basically that would mean that the states could not basically put Donald Trump on their ballots, right? So when Trump would apply to appear on the general election ballots, the right. states wouldn't be able to do that. Um, right. Now Trump would then sue, right? And then at that point, you would probably have a lower a lower court basically saying like, eh, this is, this is within um, the purview of the Senate to actually do, right? Mm -hmm. um, you would probably see appeals and the Supreme Court would probably have to weigh in in some respect. Um, it probably wouldn't really want to touch it, and so probably just kick it back down to the lower court. Um, that's how. So I. So basically, I think it would be upheld in the court system, um, assuming the Senate actually did decide to bar. Um, and that's kind of the big question that we're all asking at this point: is will 17 Republicans join the 50 Democrats to reach the requisite two-thirds majority um, to convict and potentially bar President Trump from running for office again? Yeah. Now, normally. 
Go ahead. I was going to say Mitch McConnell's been cagey, but he's hinted that he might be open, right? And so that that suggests to me that he's at least wanting to have some conversations to see, like you know, how many of me are there, right, on my side who might be willing to think about this, um, because it does raise this. I mean, the interesting question. Like we've been we've talked on this podcast before about you know Trump coming back in twenty four, and I think. You know, Republicans like McConnell are, they, they were already somewhat concerned about this. And after January 6th, you're much more concerned about this, right? Um, and so is this something kind of we could pull off? You know, I think this is what is going to go into the mind of people like McConnell um, to kind of solve our Trump problem, right? Yeah. Um, so that he goes away and we make sure he goes away, that he doesn't have the opportunity to come back. And once again, as he's done for the last four plus years, suck all the oxygen out of the room from all the other Republicans. Uh, I do, you know, as a comparativist, get a little concerned about this. I mean, I think there's, you know, I, I get that all that case and I'm deeply sympathetic with it. Um, I think there's also a danger of trying to ban people, like ban the people from choosing, right? Even though um, I am, again, sympathetic with the case for not choosing Donald Trump, um, as we've talked about a lot in this podcast, right? I mean, I think of the case of Argentina, right? With the, when the military kind of stepped in um, and threw out Juan Perón and then kept trying to return to, to return to democracy, but refused to let the people choose Perón, right? And it created all sorts of deep, deep problems for kind of democratic legitimacy. And so I think that's, that's the danger, right? Is you ban a, a Trump from even appearing. Um, and does that become the sort of like lost cause that people rally around and become its own kind of distraction, right? And I think that's that's the concern I have. Yeah, and I, I totally get that. And that's one of the arguments that you're seeing some some you know Republicans in the House and the Senate making is that you know we're going to make him a martyr um, and right. we're going to um, you know basically energize his base and so on. And I, I get that, but you know I think here's the thing: like we don't know exactly how all that's going to play out. Right. Yep. We, don't, we don't know necessarily the effects that this would have upon Trump's base, right? Um, we do know that Trump is a threat to democracy, right, in, right. in a fundamental sort of way. Yep. And so, you know, basically the, the only arguments that you're seeing against, that Republicans are floating against, the only serious arguments I would say that Republicans are floating against impeaching Trump are sort of these purely prudential reasons based off of what ifs in the future. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, but to me, those should probably be outweighed, but by what we do know what yeah. Trump has done. And, and there's a more important need at this point to signal to the country signal to future presidents that there are certain sorts of behavior that is simply not tolerated. And here's the thing, right? much of the GOP's approach, I mean, so some of the GOP for the past four years have truly embraced Trump. A lot of them have sort of embraced him while holding their noses. And they've hoped that Trump would just go away and that the so-called Trump problem would take care of itself. That's yep. the approach that they've taken for the past four years. But you know what? It's never worked. The problem has never taken care of itself, which right. is why we're in the situation that we are today, guys. Mm -hmm. um, and so at some point, you have to make the tough call and you actually have to say, no, we're not going to stand for this. And if yeah. you can't say no at this point, after what <laughs> Trump has done, then, then right. we can you, um, right. so yeah, yeah I, I get Andy's, Andy's point and I, I do understand the sort of prudential concerns there, but I think there are more immediate and obvious and weighty, weighty concerns. Um, yeah. I think so, I agree so, with that. 
So help, me so help me reason something out here, guys. Um, I'm generally of the opinion that Mitch McConnell is a warlock. Um, and by <laughs> that, I mean uh, he is um, has incredible political skills, particularly when it comes to uh, vote whipping and vote counting. Yes. It seems to me unlikely that he's suggesting that he's willing to consider voting for uh, the removal of, from office of Donald Trump and the barring of him from serving an, an elected office in the future. Um, it seems weird to me that he would sort of float that idea as a way of seeing if other people will support it or not. My sense is Mitch McConnell probably from memory could tell you who would and wouldn't support that at the present time. So I have to think that his decision to sort of put himself out there as Senate majority leader to consider sort of moving on from Trump in a very substantive, meaningful way is not to see who comes along with him, but maybe to give cover to others to come out to do that. Um, Am I reading that correctly, or is this is yeah. is it is? So yeah, I, I think so. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Mr. McConnell is if if Washington has ever had a political genius in the past generation, it's him. Um, yeah, I think it, he potentially is providing some cover. I don't think he wants to. I mean, the reporting indicates that there's a good chance that he actually would like to see Trump impeached, but he also knows that there's currently not enough political will in the Senate to do that. So the question is, how do you reach that goal if that is a goal that you that you hope for in some sense? Mm -hmm. and the point is, you let the process sort of play out um, and you find ways to sort of build support. I do wonder if perhaps um, he's hoping he and maybe a few other sort of members are holding out um, sort of impeaching Trump as a way to sort of bargain with Democrats. Like, okay, you want us to vote for impeachment to kick Trump out. Fine. We agree that might be a good idea, but we also want some guarantees from you that you're not going to nuke the filibuster. Um, and we'd also like some decent committee chairmanships. And uh, Mr. McConnell would like some sort of power sharing agreement with Schumer in which Schumer doesn't get to run the whole railroad without any sort of input. Um, so I wonder if he's holding out for some of that and hoping that ultimately you're going to see sort of enough steam build up over the next few weeks um, to actually remove Trump from office, knowing that, you know, we're getting more revelations about how bad things got. Yeah, maybe you're going to be able to get enough Republicans to to sort of jump on board, jump on board the train. So, yeah. Right, because I mean, I think with with proper cover, right? I think it's not hard to imagine seventeen Republicans and right. maybe more getting there, maybe a right. lot more actually, right? Um, I, I could, you know, probably look at the list, right, and come up with those likely suspects. Um, but but there does have to be that cover, right? And so I think the the revelations that keep coming out are important, right? And they might they might build this to the point where people say, yeah, we really need to do this. Right. Yeah, you have a few different sort of um, sort of buckets, you might say, of of members, GOP members in in Congress. I mean, in yeah. Congress, right. Yeah. So you yeah. get those people who are fully opposed to Trump and are, have been willing to impeach in the House. So ten, yeah. right? Liz Cheney being right. the most prominent one, um, or remove in the case of the Senate, right? Yeah. So yeah. we know Murkowski and Toomey and Sass, probably Romney. They're going to yeah. board removal. Yeah. Then you get so the sort of four. You might lose Joe Manchin. Um, maybe, maybe. Oh, I think he'd vote to he'd vote to uh, remove. So you think? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. All right. So let's let's uh, so let's he's so, let's, so let's, let's go to fifty four then. Um. Yeah. So the I would I would even put it fifty five fifty six. Um, okay. 
I think Romney. Romney's definitely in there. Um, so then you have those people who are sort of sitting on the fence, but want to see how things play out. This is definitely the McConnell group, right? Um, yep. You know, I welcome the proceedings, and I don't know how I'm going to vote. Um, that's what McConnell has said. Um, but you know, did you put, put Lindsey Graham in that category? No, uh, Graham is in the next category. Graham is in the group that just hopes all this is going to go away, right? You know, <laughs> I, I, I um, these are sort of people who you know might be okay with proceedings, might not be, but they definitely impose impeachment in general. So you get McCarthy, um, you get Graham, um, Tim Scott, interestingly enough, uh, Tom Cotton. Um, Rubio said he's fine with proceedings, but he's like, well, we might divide the country, you know, if we yeah, if we yeah. move forward. Um, and so we should do this for the sake of unity, which of course is. Um, Carp because they've a lot of these Republicans have been happy to go along with with all of Trump's rhetoric that has basically split the country. So now right, right. it's kind of insane to me. But anyway, so you have this group that just hopes it's all going to go away. The problem's going to take care of itself. Trump's going to leave office. Hopefully he'll fade and we can move on. Yeah. Um, and then there's sort of like the outright sort of Trump supporters. Um, and this is the largest group in the House. So group three is probably the largest yeah. group in the Senate. The sort of outright Trump supporters is the largest group in the House. But I will point out, guys, that, you know, go read about what some of these Republicans are saying in their pri in private. Yeah. They yeah. are scared not only of sort of getting voted out of office, right, in, in yeah. their primaries. Some of them are scared for their lives. Right. Right. And I mean, yeah. there's, there's reports of, you know, especially in the House, you know, the House where, you know, House members generally, they don't get security details, right? Mm -hmm. They live in, in, in Trumpy districts, Trumpy states, that yeah. um, there are people living who know where they live, right. usually threaten their families, and they are scared to take a public yeah. stance. Um, and now you could say like, well, they've made, made their bed, you know, and they should lie in it now. Yeah. But, you know, we should understand that some of what's going on is, yeah. is they're genuinely fearful. Um, which is yet another reason why we got to put a stop to to all of the uh, shenanigans. So. Right, right. No, totally. All right. Again, I'm looking for a little bit of a prediction here. Uh, does this trial end with 67 votes in favor of conviction? Oof, man. I think it's just too early to say that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, four, three or four days ago, I would have said no. Today... Yeah. It's possible. Fence, um, yeah. which is maybe a hopeful thing, um, but I, I'm not sure. I, I would not bet any money either way. Let's just put it that way. So, right, right. I agree. It's just, many, and the other thing we didn't talk about, but we should just throw in there too. I mean, like, there's all the like senators who look in the mirror and see themselves as president, right? And there's quite a few of those on the Republican side, and so like there's that calculation, right? Like I mean, so there's the the very real security concerns that Matt's raised, and those are very real. And then there's all the political ca calculations, both for your state, but also for your national desires, right? And that's there's a lot of senators who are at least not like you know, that that is part of their calculus, right? And so. Um, it, it's just really hard to know, like, how does all this play out? I mean, Trump's approval ratings went down. Do they stay down? That might matter, right? I mean, like, which, you know, where his numbers go with Republicans matters, right? Mm -hmm. So I just think we there's a lot more we need to find out, and that's going to sway how people think, and that's going to, therefore, have an impact on how senators think. I'm going to do what you guys will not, and I'm going to make a bold prediction. Bold, Chris. <laughs> I predict the Senate will not convict Donald Trump in the impeachment trial. 
Here's why. I think Matt is absolutely correct. I think Mitch McConnell will offer Republican support for a conviction um, to try to wrest certain kinds of concessions from Chuck Schumer. And I think the longer those negotiations go on, the more attenuated they become, the more likely we get further away from Trump. And there is pressure both from the Democratic left as well as from moderates on both parties to simply move on and get started with the Biden agenda. And the more pressure Schumer has to get started with the Biden agenda, the less appealing he's, it's going to be to make concessions to McConnell to try to get Trump uh, remove, uh, banned from office in the future. And the shadow of the future just recedes and people decide, well, yeah, he might run again. But hey, if he runs again, that's bad for Republicans, not bad for Democrats. And right. then Schumer just walks away from the negotiations and we don't get a conviction. That's my prediction. Yep. Yeah, will be. Yeah, um, I, I you know there's still quite a few people on the left who really do want to see Trump impeached. So I think that's a countervailing force there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, so you think on the Republican side, like what's what's the calculus of some of these some of these men and women in the Senate? Like, you know, like you know they want to be able to raise money. Um, they want to have credibility, um, and you know, not just credibility with their own primary base, but credibility with their general election base and the credibility with like businesses and donors. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and if they don't go along with impeachment, right. I wonder if, I wonder if they're hurt and it kind of depends on what lane they want to run into. Right. So yep. if they're like, I'm going to run, I'm going to run for president in sort of the like, Hey, I'm not crazy, you know, and I didn't you know, <laughs> to kick out, you know, you know, bar from, from office, you know, a president who is damaging to our democracy, but I still like some of his policies. You could run in that lane and say like, but you know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, they're nuts. Right. So yeah, I, right. I'm running that lane to them. Right. Mm -hmm. So yep. um, because those two are in their lane and they're going to have a hard time shifting lanes. <laughs> let's, yep. let's put it that way. So yeah, I, you know, um, it wouldn't surprise me either way. I, I think we'll know more in, in a week or two, how all this plays out. Worth noting, by the way, as we prepare to start to wrap up today, Nikki Haley launched a pack, uh, a website uh, yesterday, which features absolutely zero pictures of Donald Trump in it. Ah, uh, yep. So Sounds there's right. the, there's one of your lanes, my friends. Yep. And 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 I should note too, kind of along these lines, is you know people are sort of afraid of how Donald Trump is going to you know was going to use Twitter to sort of you know target particular members, um, yeah. and you know as as being sort of the the target of a primary challenge, right? Well, like well, Trump's voice has been you know incredibly diminished. I could see him mm -hmm. finding a way to sort of worm back into sort of our you know his voice back into sort of our, our constant sort of public conversation about politics but but i think his ability to do that is is severely undermined and i think that provides a little more space for republicans i mean there's still a lot of his supporters that are going to that are going to be upset you know if a member you know, if a senator votes to bar right but yep. and i don't know <laughs> just just so many different factors it's, it's hard to say yep we shall see well, we have so much more to talk about, my friends. Uh, we have um, we need to talk about what's next for for Donald Trump. Time will tell on that. We might need to punt on that question for a while. But we need to talk about the impact of these of these coming events for both the Republican and Democratic parties. 
And I want to specifically want to focus on um, what we think the first 100 days the Biden administration are going to look like. So um, mm -hmm. by the time we roll around for our next um, our, our next podcast, we'll probably have viewed a very sedate inauguration. And <laughs> yes. well, I, I should say it this way. Maybe not sedate, but but um, limited. I think we're going right. to see a very a very um, modestly planned uh, inauguration. But I'm interested to see if there's any if there's any protest and if there's any uh, violent action, whether it's in um, the the, nat the national capital or whether it's in state capitals uh, here um, in uh, Minnesota as well as other states from the country. Uh, governors are calling up the national guard to protect uh, key governmental sites uh, for the next week and. Um, there's real concern, legitimate threats from the FBI uh, that the FBI has publicized um, about threats to uh, governmental structures inside the United States. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, so there's going to there's twenty thousand National Guard going to be in D.C. Right? I yep. mean, there are literally members of the National Guard sleeping in the rotunda. Get mm -hmm. your head around that. You can go find pictures yeah. of it. So I'm not too worried about D.C. just because there's overwhelming presence and that right. tends to um, have real deterrent value. Um, I am more worried about these state capitals and, you know, and potential violence against individual members while they're traveling, for example. That's that's yep. what I'm concerned about. I think that's I think you're right. I think that's exactly right. So, friends, uh, let's be praying for peace um, and civility um, in the midst of this transition in power. And let's um, let's keep our eyes open. We'll be with you uh, through this whole process. We'll be back in your feed next week to review the inauguration and to talk about Biden's first 100 days. Um, thanks for listening to us. Uh, you can always get in touch with us at um, electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can get a hold of the channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. Please subscribe to our channel. we got a lot of great things happening uh, these days. Um, Avatar with Academics. Um, I think Bookingship Bethel might be coming back in the spring for some little more, more humanities chat. Um, and, uh, and plenty of other things in the podcast feed as well. Thanks for listening to us. Um, thanks for sticking with us through this very tumultuous season. We hope we're <laughs> adding some light to all of the heat. Um, on behalf of my colleagues, thanks for listening and go Royals.